listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. We are in a new fall sermon series called Why the Gospel is Good News. Gospel, literally in Greek, euangelion, literally means, as you probably know, good news. The ancients used it when the empire or their nation would go out and fight a battle or capture a city or win a war and there was a great victory. They would send a gospel out to the rest of the empire announcing the good news of the victory. And in many ways, Christians and Jesus himself, right from the very beginning of his ministry, used this word to describe what God was doing in Jesus Christ. It is good news of victory. And so last week, Pastor Russ began our sermon series by exploring true healing so beautifully, the myths of healing in our world and the true healing that the gospel brings. And I want to preach this morning on the subject equally as crucial to understanding the gospel, and that is power. The myths and mythologies of power in our world and the true power that Jesus gives. All right, y'all can talk back today. Don't be afraid. I can handle it. All right, (laughs) go ahead. I recently have been doing a lot of work on the small patches of of yard uh, of earth that surround my house. In doing so, I've been trying to create more beauty for my neighbors and my family and for pollinators and birds and butterflies. And I promised my wife, I said, baby, I'm going to put a little fountain in the side of the yard for you. All right, it's a, it's a work in progress, and I'm waiting on the money and the intention to progress further. But as I was researching that, I realized that I didn't have any power on that side of the yard, so I, I began looking in, into solutions for that. How do I run a fountain without power? I said, surely these days they make solar panels, right? They make solar fountains, and indeed they do. For as little as $10, you can buy a little solar panel that big, and make a little trickle in your fountain. Or if you want to pay more money, you can get a bigger solar panel with a bigger fountain. But as I did research on these technologies, I found out that there was a great limitation in such technologies. I figured, you know, the solar panel would absorb the the rays of the sun and work all day. But in fact, the little solar panels can only run the fountain when the sun is directly shining on them. And in fact, if you get on YouTube and watch the reviews, you can put your hand right in front of the solar panel and shade it, and all of a sudden the fountain turns off. Uh, See, this has become for me a parable, an image, because solar panels can only receive outside power from a source uh, vastly superior to it in power. And if we hypothesize a scenario where a solar panel could speak to the sun, it would be quite ridiculous for the solar panel to say, I do not need you. The human project, our cultures throughout time, from ancient times to boomers to Gen X to Gen Z, is a continual project with one aim in mind, and that is to convince us as humans over and over again that we are the sun and not the panel. Life is about survival of the fittest, glory to the winners, and all of it is achieved through the exercise of human power. 
this mindset so prevalent and insidious within churches and on street corners and in boardrooms and in living rooms that I don't need to give you examples of it. It's not hard to find those within whatever sphere in their life who are trying to make themselves out to be little kings or queens or presidents over others. The way of Jesus, though, is completely opposed to this kind of power. Though you wouldn't always know it from the church's history, we are prone to baptize worldly power in the name of Jesus. But it is worth remembering that Jesus said in Luke 22, the kings of the nations exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, the leader as the one who serves. Oh, wow, what a beautiful sentiment that's so opposed to the status quo of domination in our world that has so often been baptized in the name of godly authority. But the gospel of Jesus frees us from living in that trap, the trap of mythological power that the world offers to us. So I want to look at the text today from the dimensions found in the text in 2 Corinthians 4, two angles on power, the false power and the true power, comparing and contrasting them. But first, I want to give you a word about context and about power itself, because I'm plopping you down into a book that is rarely taught. You might have heard maybe a few sermons about 2 Corinthians, right? And there's a lot that I could say about the context of this letter, but I want, to very, I want to keep it very simple and brief. The person who wrote this letter, of course, his name was Paul. And if you've been around church a lot, then you know that Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. And there's a lot we could say about Paul. But for the purpose of this sermon, I really don't want you to, ima- I don't want you to imagine a Ph.D. theologian Paul sitting at a lectern. Nor do I want you to imagine a dogmatic rule-keeping Paul with a ruler in his hand slapping wrists. I would rather want you to imagine Pastor Paul, because that's who Paul was. He was an ordinary person pastoring normal, small congregations in some big cities, but also in some small cities. He was a typical blue-collar laboring uh, worker like his Lord Jesus. And he gave the rest of his time bivocationally in ministry to the work of small local churches in ordinary neighborhoods like yours and mine. He suffered a lot. He was quite unpopular with many people. He had trouble speaking in public, which is a struggle if you're trying to pastor people. And he had trouble standing out among his peers. Though he was a great writer, he wasn't much to listen to, evidently. And the Corinthian congregation, like many American congregations, found all of those qualities very troubling. So even though Paul had established their congregations and had preached the gospel to them, had done many signs and wonders, and had shown the kingdom of God for them, had sacrificed so much for them, they had begun to gravitate, we find out in 2 Corinthians especially, to teachers who were much more preferable over Paul. See, these kind of teachers were wealthier. They dressed better. They spoke better. And so who can blame the Corinthians for being attracted to power and poise and privilege? And this attraction to to worldly power and gratification, it had created all kinds of havoc within the Corinthians' communities because anytime you are ruled by worldly power, it will create communal havoc and not communal harmony. And so Pastor Paul then has had to have some very difficult conversations with this community. First, in the form of a painful visit, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and here in the form of this letter. 
And we call it 2 Corinthians because it's the second letter that we have that survived. But really, it's evident within the letters that he wrote multiple letters to them. And this letter is very confrontational. And it's very emotional from Pastor Paul to his congregation. Sorry. (laughs) Evidently, Siri heard me. She's trying to get in on this. Uh, (laughs) For Paul... As Pastor Paul and as a Christian, when it came to figuring out questions of how he, could, how he should conduct himself as a leader and how he should exercise his authority among people, how, how did he gain wisdom for that? Who did he look at? He simply looked at the way that Jesus lived and he decided to imitate it. And that was very crucial, and it's very crucial today when we think about how to exercise power and influence and authority of our lives. How are we going to do that? What system of rubric are we going to use? For Paul, it was all about looking at the way that Jesus had exercised power and imitating that. And Paul wants to show something to the Corinthians about true power and false power. But definitions are important. What do we say when we say the word power? Our English word power means simply to be able to do something, (laughs) to affect change, to have influence. Paul knew quite well that power ultimately for him was sourced in the source of all power, the creator God. See, humans were made male and female in the image of this all-powerful God, meaning they had been made in the likeness of God, underneath, uh, created by God, and they were tasked in the world with ruling or having dominion over the things of creation. Interestingly enough, in the beginning of the story, not rule and dominion over one another. One conversation partner for this sermon this week has been Dr. Diane Langberg. She is an amazing trauma therapist who specializes in abuse in the church. And she's she's spoken in this very pulpit a few years ago. And her book, Redeeming Power, has been such a rich gift for me this week as I've been trying to figure out this passage and figure out about about gospel power. So I, I recommend that book. And she taught me so much about power and the way that it is exercised. She reminded me that each person as they are born into this earth has both power and vulnerability. We have both power and weakness. We can affect change, but change can happen to us, right? And her lovely example for this is a four-day-old baby girl. And that four-day-old baby girl, vulnerable as she is, weak as she is, dependent as she is, has the amazing power to rouse her 32-year-old parents and wake them up in the middle of the night to serve her needs. She has power. She has a voice. And yet, she is vulnerable to her parents. They have power too. They can choose to abuse her. They can choose to tragically neglect her cries for help, can't they? See, they have power too. And she has great vulnerability. And they can use their power to care and comfort just like you can, or you can use your power to curse and abuse. And our world is a tragic interplay between power and vulnerability. She reminded me, Dr. Langberg did, that there are different kinds of power, and each of these kinds of power can be used to bless or it can be used to curse. There is verbal power. Think of your words, how much power they have to either encourage another soul, to comfort another soul, or to shame and denigrate another soul. There is emotional power. An abusive father can not say anything but just use body language and rule over his children. 
or that emotional power can be used to soothe and bless. There's physical power. There's economic power. There's the power of knowledge or expertise that we give to pastors or professors or doctors or experts. And each of those people can abuse using their expertise, can't they? There is spiritual power in the church. There is cultural and societal-wide power that can be used to free or it can be used to oppress. And yes, each of us as individuals have this kind of power, but groups of individuals and systems like congregations and countries and families can exercise these harmful or helpful types of power. So that's the backdrop I want to paint for you, the, the context of 2 Corinthians and the context of understanding power. And Paul is simply going to do four things, and I want to walk through them briefly. He's going to compare and contrast the way that these false teachers are using power and the way that he, has, he and his ministry counterparts have used it. He's going to say four things, these four phrases. I'm going to start with the first one. False power hides, true power reveals. All right? False power hides, true power reveals. He opens up the passage. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But we commend ourselves to the open truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. From the very beginning, human beings are hiders, aren't we? We hide the truth of what we have done or what we're planning to do, you know, especially when we know that it is wrong. But the way that we often hide is subtle, isn't it? A husband tells his wife that he has to work late when he's really going to go to the club. A woman tells her friend she can't pick her friend up from the airport because she's sick when she's not. A pastor tells someone that if they do this or that thing, that either God will bless them or they will curse them. A pastor uses his position as an expert to prove what he wants other people to do theologically. Many pastors in the history of America told their congregations that slavery was approved by God by misquoting and misapplying and tricking Bible verses and keeping silent in the face of great evil. Why? Because to tell the real truth and reveal it would cost them their jobs, their life, their money. See, human beings obfuscate truth. We make gray or unclear what is actually clearly wrong. We deflect blame, don't we? A man yells and abuses his girlfriend because she did blank. I only acted like this because you did blank. We practice lying, or as Paul says in this passage, we practice cunning, which is another word for trickery or deceit to manipulate others. These teachers in Corinth, they are building their own ministries. They are profiting from the Corinthians. They are tricking them. They are using a kind of preaching of God's truth and God's word. They are talking about Jesus, but they are not imitating Jesus at all. They are saying the name Jesus while behaving in demonic ways. And Paul is saying, ultimately, that the Corinthians are being tricked by these people claiming to be ministers. And Pastor Paul says, in contrast, by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. And later, in verse 13, he quotes Psalm 116 and says, I believe and so I spoke. Paul said... Paul is saying that he is using his power to just speak the truth, to live in the truth. And he wants to know, he wants them to know that what they see is what they get. And what they get is what they see. He says, in effect, I haven't hidden anything from you, Corinthians. What I've said in public, I have said in private. 
I haven't said something to you from, from the pulpit and then from behind your back said another very different thing. Paul uses this powerful phrase in the sight of God because he acknowledges that all power is exercised truly in the sight of God. You cannot hide the truth from God. And Paul is saying that he wants his ministry to be defined by transparency and truth. So the question for you is, how are you using your power? How am I using my power? Are we hiding? Are we deceiving? Are we tricking? Are we revealing the truth? Secondly, Paul says, false power exalts self. True power exalts God and others. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Human beings often bolster our sense of self because of our insecurity and vulnerability, don't we? By exalting ourselves over others, either through our inward thoughts and motivations, but also through our outward power plays. We compare our skills and our gifts and our monies. We build walls and make sure that our kingdom is not going to get invaded. Starting as innocently from a, from a child I might know who says, I'm the best at soccer in my class. I could dominate that boy over there. <laughs> and of course, many grown men have not grown out of such childish jockeying. Paul makes it clear many times in 2 Corinthians, but especially here in verse 5, that what he proclaims is not anything special about himself. He is saying, I am a servant for Jesus' sake. The word servant can be translated slave. It can be translated uh, errand runner. <laughs> and, and Paul says, I only have, in verse 1, he says, I only have this ministry among you because of the mercy or compassion of God. The word ministry literally means service, a service of someone which is counter to the way we often understand ministry. When someone says, how big is your ministry? They're trying to say, how big is your platform? When Paul says his ministry, he's saying, the people that I serve. <laughs> so when we ask somebody, how big is your ministry? What we should mean is, how many people are you currently serving? You see the difference of paradigm? Pastor Paul, at one time, was named Saul, and he was using his power to oversee the stoning of Christians. He was confident and zealous in his power, but then he got humbled by the gospel. And now he says, I don't proclaim myself. He is basically saying to the Corinthians, I'm not special. I am just a servant. Literally, I'm just a servant for Jesus' sake. And Paul will say about the other teachers that have come into Corinth that in, in chapter 5 that they boast about their outward appearance and not what is in the heart. We are always tempted to boast about whatever we can See outwardly, however big our churches are, or however plenteous our gifts are, or whatever our accomplishments are. But Paul is saying, no, I am literally just a servant for Jesus' sake. What is, he, what is he saying? He is saying that I have been sent out by Jesus to do Jesus' work, and that's what I'm doing among you. I am not building my platform. I'm not doing anything special. The other teachers, of course, love to boast about their outward abilities. They love to exalt themselves and, and feel special like solar panels vying for the sun's rays. But Paul says something essential about power, that it, it is derived from somewhere else. Paul says, in effect, I am not the sun, I am a solar panel. 
But he's, he does so in the technology of his day. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What is he talking about? Well, I think most likely because of the use of light and darkness in the passage, he's talking about what was a common lamp in the ancient Near East. And how that worked is you would take a very thin clay jar or vessel and you would put a wick in it. And the thing was that the thinner the clay vessel, the brighter the light would shine. The thinner and weaker and more cracked the outer shell, the more light could shine through it. And what Paul then calls back to mind is in the first creation, God said, let there be light, and and there was light. This same powerful God has spoken again in our hearts, and he has made the light of the face of Jesus shine there. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, listen, I am no one special among you. I am weak. I am choosing to show you outwardly that I'm a simple person. Why? Because I don't want you to glorify me. I have no light that exists within myself. Anything that's there is a source of God's grace in my life. And the thinner my shell is, the brighter that light will shine. That is Paul's paradigm of power among the Corinthians. And oh, if it would be ours. But we are so tempted to solidify our outward shell. And therefore, we obscure the gospel of Jesus. We obscure the glory of God. Why do we do this? Why do we do it all? It leads us to the third quality. False power avoids suffering. True power suffers for others. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way. We're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. He eventually says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. So death is at work with us, but life in you. In so many ways today, we are surrounded by the mindset, both within the church and without, that the worst thing that could possibly befall us is suffering, or self-denial, or denying our own desires, or inconvenience or pain for the sake of God, or for the sake of our faith, or for the sake of someone else. On many sides of the ideological or ethical or political spectrum, you can find that mindset. You can find the mindset of, I should never have to be inconvenienced or pay my tax dollars for this poor person over here, this migrant over here. I should not have to foot the bill of someone else's needs. I should not have to suffer for anyone. And on another side, you can find a mindset that says, I should never have to deny my desires and certainly ask no one to deny their desires for that would be repressive and I would free, I wouldn't, that wouldn't be authentic and it would be denying of self. And both mindsets, while very different, come back to a fundamental assumption. And that assumption is that at all costs, one thing I must avoid in my life is pain. One thing I must avoid in my life is suffering, especially for someone else. And all of that has often been baptized in the name of Jesus, which is so extremely curious to me and to the text of Scripture. Because this this is the same Jesus who modeled the way of self-denial who modeled the way of downward mobility and suffering for the sake of another. The Jesus way is admitting frailty and weakness. That is why the strong and the wise of this world will always despise the true gospel of Jesus. If people in power are cozying up to the church, just know that the church is probably co-opting their message. The message of the gospel is that you are weak and helpless, but God saved you. What human spirit says throughout any time and place is, I am not weak or helpless, I am strong. 
Nietzsche, the great German philosopher who saw so much of human striving and living to be a will to power, he despised the Christian faith with its introspection and its emphasis on weakness and humility and not achievement and power. And I think, again, that the reason why so many people in America today do not despise the Christian faith is because they really haven't understood it. Because the, the, the gospel is always foolishness to the wise. It is foolishness to the strong, and it is completely counter-cultural message in any culture, and at any time, and in any place. We don't want to suffer in so many ways. A husband doesn't want to go to marriage counseling because he doesn't want to have to deal with painful conversations and drama in his life. And therefore, we shut ourselves off from transformation because it is through suffering that transformation comes, is what Paul is saying. Pastor Paul lets the Corinthians in on something. And in fact, he does this throughout all of the letter. If you go back and read it this week, which I encourage you to, that he is weak, that he is suffering, but that those realities do not mean that he's been rejected by God or that his ministry has been condemned by God. In fact, he says on the contrary, because I am suffering, I am imitating Jesus among you. If I was living a cushy and protected and comfortable life, then you should be skeptical of me. But because I am being Jesus among you, the kind of ministry that the crucified Lord had, the wounded healer, the lion and the lamb, that's the kind of strength that comes from true love, which comes from true sacrifice and suffering. And that's why he says that he carries in his body the death of Jesus. What did Jesus do when he was on earth? He sacrificed for others. He went through great pain to show love. And Paul is saying, Jesus is still doing this. But the way he's doing this is through my body. <laughs> and just as he poured himself out and, was, and new life was filling his body, so it is with me. I follow the shape of Jesus. I bow down and serve and suffer and somehow find that there is a resurrection power that comes in the midst of it. That's the shape of true gospel ministry and true Christian life. If you want to love people well, if we want to love the people of our place well, it will not be comfortable. If you want to get involved and serve the poor and see people's lives transformed and see people escape from oppression and tyranny, it will cost us much suffering because love always does. I think that some people, even Christian leaders and pastors, even though they might say it, they act as if the goal of the Christian life is to increase pleasure over time until we are finally free and comfortable from the dirty work, the dirty work of spreadsheets and prayer requests and prayer calls and cleaning floors and bathrooms and taking out the trash. That is not love. Nor is it reality. It's a fantasy. It's an illusion. It's a vision of life that is completely out of step with that that Jesus taught. And he even goes so far as to let the Corinthians know that he is perplexed. What does that mean? He's confused. He's saying, I as a leader am confused. I don't have all the answers. I'm looking at the circumstances and I can't explain everything to you. But guess what? I wasn't meant to in the first place. God knows it all. I'm dependent on him. That finally leads to the last part of the scripture passage today and the last diametric of false and true power. False power despairs, true power hopes. Paul says we don't lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
We're not looking to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All false power, the false power that hides from the truth, the false power that exalts self, the false power that avoids suffering, it is all rooted in a fundamental fear and despair. And that fear and despair is rooted in the fact that power seeks to build our kingdoms and bolster our bank accounts and egos and pleasures. It is ultimately an exercise in chasing the wind. Because all of us exercise our power in a body that is weak and frail and fading away. All of us live life in the temporal and temporary. And we are strangely fascinated and horrified at news stories of death because we don't know how to, we don't know how to frame that. But it's the reality constantly that each of us live in frail frames. Our lives are so vulnerable and fleeting. You can build a Warren Buffett-sized bank account. It's not going to shield you in the end. You can build an Amazon-like company with profits. It, too, will fade away. Just ask Sears and Robux. You can, ask, you can build a Beyonce-like name. But in all likelihood, in a generation or two, no one will remember you. The only thing that can save you from your own mortality is immortality. The only thing that can save you from the fleeting human false powers is an eternal weight of glory. And that is found in one place. It is in in Jesus Christ and his gospel of the kingdom of God. An eternal kingdom. Citizenship in a city that cannot be shaken. A wealth or inheritance that is kept for heaven and you. Not based on your performance, but based on God's mercy. An eternal resurrection life existing in your very body that will one day raise your very body just as it raised Jesus's. That is the eternal weight of glory that Paul is talking about. And when you know that gospel... That euangelion, that gospel rooted in the truth of God's mercy and love for you and for the whole world, you can actually be freed from the pursuits of false power. You can actually tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Because you know that as bad as the truth might be in your life right now, it is not too bad for the grace of God and the true mercy of God. You can live to exalt others and God and not yourself because you are secure. Because you know God will exalt you. God will reward you. God will bless you and will give you a crown one day. That's how the scripture motivates people. You can learn that life is not about avoiding suffering. Life is embracing the way of suffering and pain that leads to resurrection, joy, and life, and contentment in God. And finally, this gospel will free you from fear and despair. To know that all your hope and life and in death rests in Jesus and his eternal kingdom. That's why the gospel is good news today. Do you know that this morning? That the gospel can free you from striving in your life, resting in the power of God, knowing that you have his treasure in your jar of clay to show that the power didn't ever belong to you in the first place. You are not the sun, you are a panel. But let me tell you something. The Son of God's love will always shine. Turn towards his face today and seek him. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.